Welcome back. It's great to see you again. This is MLEX's weekly podcast covering the top stories in regulatory affairs with the help of our team of reporters embedded in the corridors of power around the globe. My name is James Panicki. I'm MLEX's Asia-Pacific Senior Editor, and we have another action-packed program for you today. In just over 10 minutes' time, we'll return to the ongoing soccer antitrust case, which is unfolding in Europe. The European Court of Justice is considering whether UEFA, the European Soccer Federation, should be allowed to exercise a de facto monopoly in running the game. It's antitrust meets sport meets the cultural significance of football, and it will no doubt be a fun conversation with Lewis Crofts, who was in court this week. First up, though, to the UK, where proposed changes to legislation, which have come about as a result of Brexit, are prompting some soul-searching over the freedom of regulators to regulate. The conversation is centering on the insurance industry, but it comes down to a consideration over whether the UK's executive should be able to step in when it's unhappy with a regulatory outcome. Now, this isn't quite Charles I storming Parliament. I'm not sure a prudential regulator could inspire 400 soldiers to fight for the right to oversee the insurance industry. Nonetheless, it's a significant story for both us and our readership, and it's one that our financial services correspondent Fiona Maxwell has covered with her usual alacrity. And she joins us now from London. So, uh, Fiona, how have these new dynamics between government and regulator come about, uh, and what could they mean for UK financial services policy? Hi, James. Thanks. So... Basically, after the UK left the EU, the finance ministry, the the Treasury in the UK began to redesign the financial services regulatory architecture, so how it works in the UK um, as opposed to in the EU. Um, It's called the Future Regulatory Framework, and it's basically a blueprint for how financial services policy should be written uh, going forward. It contains things like more rule writing powers for the Bank of England's um, prudential regulator uh, and for the Financial Conduct Authority. Uh, and uh, as another example, a new objective for them to take into account the growth and competitiveness uh, of the UK when writing rules. So just as a bit of background, uh, this new way of doing things is important because previously rules were made around the table of 28 EU countries. That was when the UK was part of the EU. Um, And now the way regulation is written will be quite different. So the Treasury will set kind of the wider aims of the rules, And then the the Bank of England, the PRA and the FCA write the technical aspects. So as you might be able to imagine, there's been some pushback from the financial services industry saying that, you know, essentially the politics has been taken out of rule writing, that regulation will become overly technical and that there isn't enough accountability for these new kind of power wielding regulators. Um, And whether that's true or not, this future regulatory framework has mechanisms for ensuring there is greater accountability for the regulators and that also includes a a new parliamentary committee to scrutinise their work. Um, But really what we're talking about today is uh, the government having handed itself probably the biggest possible power to in exceptional circumstances require the regulators to review their rules uh, and that's where the government considers that it is in the public interest um, and that the Treasury um, would also be able to direct these regulators on the scope, conduct, timing and making of reports and require them to report back, require the regulators to report back on any review. So important to note that we don't know what these powers would look like in practice, but 
that our growing fears they could undermine the independence of the regulators. And so why are these such uh, notable issues now with particular regard to insurance rules, which you've uh, written about extensively? So, again, this is a, a, a Brexit topic. So there's an ongoing review of insurance legislation in the UK. Um, that legislation is called Solvency 2, and it was inherited from the EU after Brexit. So like with many pieces of regulation, it is being amended with the UK industry in mind rather than the additional 27 countries when the UK was part of the EU. So it's a fairly technical piece of policy, um, but the headline issues in this situation is that the government has basically pegged Solvency 2, or the UK version of Solvency 2, as one of the major benefits of Brexit. So they say this policy doesn't work for the UK and Brexit gives us the opportunity to change that. And it's interesting because in a technical sense, uh, that's true. And the Bank of England believes that the existing EU inherited Solvency 2 legislation just, just doesn't work for the UK industry. Um, but where the issue comes is there's a little bit of an argument just how far the changes go on this sliding scale of benefiting insurers, which would be by cutting capital requirements uh, versus ensuring policyholder protection is maintained. So in this particular argument, the government has sided with insurers and wants widespread changes, kind of no holds barred, but the PRA is more hesitant. So the question is whether this is the time that these new powers, these new regulatory review powers that the government has granted the finance ministry, whether these could be triggered. And what could happen then if the government were to get its way and it were to seek to use these powers and intervene to overrule the regulator? So, again, it's it's hard to 100% know just because um, this is kind of still in a draft stage at the moment uh, and we haven't seen anything kind of be used in practice, but it, it could be a very big deal or it could be a red herring. So... First of all, I would say there is a chance that this wording actually gets changed by the time the government's proposal enters law. But even if it does remain, I think we kind of have to question what does it mean for a regulator to review its rules? So it's that's the wording of the proposal right now. It would, the government would be able to require the regulators to review their rules. So, so what does that mean? Is it just kind of a bit of extra admin? for the PRA, you know, to write a report on why it came to the conclusion it came to, why it thinks its regulation is appropriate, or would it have to review its rules as in revise its rules? I think also the fact that in the wording is in exceptional circumstances, the government could do this, you would hope mean, mean that the government doesn't get too kind of trigger happy with this clause. I would also say probably to prevent the the possibly terrible PR on both sides, and that's the government and the regulators, that you would hope any conversations, any disagreements like these would happen kind of behind closed doors. So if there's something that really is a red line for the government, like I said, they want capital requirements for insurers to go down a certain amount. And this is because they want to encourage um, insurers to invest in longer term assets, particularly sustainable ones. I personally would, would have thought this would happen ahead of time rather than allowing a policy to be proposed or even enter into force. And then the government come out and say, actually, no, we're not sure about these rules. Can you look at them again? I think it would undermine the independence of the regulator, um, but also the efficacy of it, because, you know, 
surely the technical regulators know better than the government. If, if not, what are they there for? Yes, indeed. And look, it would be remiss of us not to point out that the UK government is facing its own set of challenges at the moment, not least the question of who will be the country's next prime minister, I suppose. I wonder if this political atmosphere uh, could affect issues relating to the use of this tool uh, and the clash over insurance rules. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And uh, I think what's interesting about um, well, everything that's going on with the government, but also actually the kind of in- insurance piece is that there are new developments, um, maybe not every day, but at least every week at the moment. Um, I think with both of these topics, with Solvency 2 and with the regulator, future regulatory review, I think what remains to be seen is, is this a question of time or is it a question of substance as well? So on both fronts, I do think there's a chance we could see a delay so that the tool um, in the new regulatory architecture is contained in what's called the UK Financial Services and Market Bill, which was formally announced in May. So that needs to go through Parliament. Then we've got the actual Solvency 2 legislation uh, and the PRA is handling that for the time being as essentially the baton has passed to them to write the technical aspects of the rules. Um, so there's no re- real reason why the technical parts of those rules would be held up, but Also, just to to bring this into the picture, we've got a new finance minister in the UK um, and a new junior city minister, which is one of the big fallouts of this government turmoil, because previously John Glenn, the city minister, um, was in post for four years um, and he was he was very popular with all financial services parties, not to say necessarily that they agreed with him, but that he really knew his stuff and he was he was well respected by the industry, by consumer campaigners. And uh, he he resigned, um, as did uh, around 50 um, lawmakers. So all of that is to say is that it's it's not business as usual at the moment in government and that's likely to drip into policy, specifically regarding this review tool um, in the, the regulatory architecture framework. So the Bank of England Governor Andrew Bailey has been said to oppose the use of this tool and, you know, it's possible he'll have less resistance with kind of less experienced individuals at the helm of the UK Finance Ministry. And then also that's true for the the Solvency 2 side because the industry no longer has uh, John Glenn and Rishi Sunak, the the former Chancellor, backing them. So it leaves quite a lot up in the air. Well, Fiona, given this political backdrop, where do we go from here? What's likely to happen next? Uh, So firstly, on the, the financial regulatory architecture, I think it's a bit of a wait and see. So we need to see when the bill will be introduced into Parliament. And in fact, the last I heard was that was supposed to be sometime next week. But realistically, given everything that's going on in the government, I wouldn't be surprised if that that timing changes. On the insurance front, the technical work will continue. Um, Everything is just a proposal um, and in consultation stage right now. So no doubt we'll hear, hear more from the insurance industry on their concerns. And we'll just have to see how that translates into final policy. But just just to say very finally, given everything that's going on in in UK politics at the moment, I do think whoever ends up leading the Conservative Party and becoming Prime Minister could end up feeding into all of this. So some of the candidates seeking to become Prime Minister are calling for more deregulation. And actually, they're citing solvency too as a benefit of Brexit that hasn't been realised, which is, you know, quite strange because you're used to hearing would-be Prime Ministers talk about, you know, taxes and education. Uh, But no, they're actually citing um, insurance legislation as 
something that needs to be done to prove that Brexit was a success. So it really shows that it has become a very political topic. So I, I think there's a lot more to come on this. Insurance legislation has finally become sexy. That's what we all uh, were waiting for, I think, Fiona. Look, this is clearly an evolving situation, but thank you so much for keeping us up to date. I really appreciate it. Thanks, James. Fiona Maxwell is a senior financial services reporter with Emlex. She was speaking to me from London And her analysis of this issue is well worth a read, and it's available for you right now. Our web address is as follows, mlexmarketinsight.com, that's M-L-E-X marketinsight.com. You'll see there's a News Hub tab right under the MLEX logo. Just click on that, and you'll have the very best of MLEX's reporting and analysis right there at your virtual fingertips. Our subscribers, of course, have access to the full portfolio of Fiona's writing on post-Brexit financial services. There's plenty in it, if that is indeed your thing. You're listening to MLEX's weekly podcast. I'm James Panicki. Thank you for making it this far. In just a moment, we'll have a very simple question for you. Why should antitrust enforcement care about the cultural significance of sport? If you haven't done so already, you can subscribe to the MLEX podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify and Stitcher. Time to talk football now, football of the round ball variety, that's soccer for our listeners in North America and Australia, and the clash between UEFA, that's the Union of European Football Associations, and the breakaway European Super League has had its days in court. Judges are now pondering whether to have UEFA reined in as a monopoly under competition rules or to acknowledge the central cultural role that sport and the associations that support sporting teams play in European society. It's not often that an antitrust story takes us down this kind of pathway, yet here we are. Lewis Crofts is MLEX's editor-in-chief. He was in Luxembourg this week for the hearings and he joins us now from Brussels. Lewis, so UEFA runs the Champions League, then there's this other company, the Super League. So maybe start by telling us what it is that the Super League wants to achieve here and what this fight is all about. So you might remember a year ago, uh, the Super League, which was a group of a dozen of the elite uh, football clubs in Europe, Manchester United, Manchester City, uh, Tottenham, question mark whether Tottenham's elite, obviously, uh, for all those Tottenham fans out there. Um, they they said, uh, let's break away and set up our own league called the Super League, the European Super League. This is meant to be a rival to the, to the Champions League. Now, UEFA, which runs the Champions League and is the governing body for football in Europe, uh, got annoyed very quickly and said, uh, any clubs, any players taking part in this breakaway league, um, you'll be banned from uh, UEFA competitions. The UEFA competitions are obviously the sort of the great things that we all want to watch on TV in the holidays, the Champions League and the Euros. And so basically banning players from, from the big leagues and the big matches uh, that define their careers. Why do they do this? Because they said that this Super League was a closed shop. It was essentially these elite clubs uh, wanting to reserve a league for themselves with very little possibility to uh, be um, promoted into it or be relegated from it. And this was against the idea of sporting merit. So sporting merit is, you know, we start with the grassroots. And if you've got a dream, James, even you, if you've got a dream, you know, you can start off in your backyard and slowly progress from your local team to your club. 
and eventually to a big club and big countries and play for Barca and you know represent Australia in the in the World Cup and and that dream is available to you James um, and that's what's called the pyramid of of sport you can you know, start the grassroots and you can you can make your way up and so UEFA said that this breakaway league which is a closed shop um, into itself you couldn't get in you couldn't get out that that was then against the um, spirit of the game and therefore um, anyone who took part in it was going to be banned. Okay, so on the one hand, we're talking about the spirit of the game and, uh, in a way, values that might be a bit hard to define or describe legally. On the other, we're dealing with antitrust legal realities. So what happened in Luxembourg this week? So what happened was this um, you know, fight for the soul of football is actually, in the, in the deep down in the nerdy weeds, is an antitrust battle, which is... Um, are you, as a company, able to, and UEFA, you know, here is, you know, we'll, let's pretend it's a company. It's actually a, a, a sort of federation of associations, but let's pretend it's a company. If you're a company that runs a business that everyone uses, can you exclude someone from that, from, from a market? That is classic monopoly behaviour. And so the Super League went to a Madrid court last year and said, we're being beaten up by the UEFA. It's acting like a monopoly abuser. We want to. Uh, we want you to say that. We want you to rule that it's anti-competitive. The Madrid Court said this is a bit of a big deal for us. <laughs> Let's send it to the European Court of Justice in Luxembourg because these are big questions that need to be interpreted. Why are the big questions? Well, they're big for football, which is obviously a multi-billion-dollar business with loads of loads of cash and reputations and and broken-hearted fans at stake. Uh, but it's also the rules for. Loads of sports, loads of sports have a governing body. A governing body controls uh, what competitions um, uh, happen, who can play, you know, what the rules of the game are, but also the broadcasting rights and the money side of things. And so this Madrid court said, OK, bit of a big deal. Let's send it to Luxembourg. Luxembourg took a look. And this week it had basically a day and a half of hearings, which is pretty unheard of. Usually things are a bit, a bit, a bit quicker there. And um, it looked into UEFA's rules and said... Uh, do they break competition law or is sport such a different beast that we need to um, uh, not treat UEFA just as your bog standard company, but say UEFA or sports governing bodies fulfill a special role. They're there for the grassroots of the game. They're there for James's hopes and dreams of playing for Australia <laughs> one day. You know, um, we, it simply isn't a company out for its own make um, like like, like any other, uh, but it's serving a broader social purpose. You know, football plays a huge role in um, European societies. Just, you know, think of um, Barca or think of Man U or think of um, uh, any local football club. It plays a much bigger role than just a company. So should we cut it some slack because of its social role? Now, we've discussed this before on this very podcast, and, and that is that sports do tend to get special treatment in Europe. I mean, it isn't just an industry like any other. Uh, but, but what are the special rules uh, for it? In what, ways, in what way are we making certain allowances for sport teams that we wouldn't make for other industries? Yeah, so that's what it boiled down to in the court. So you had um, uh, you, the EU treaty, which I'm, I'm sure you've got a copy of on your bedside table. Of course. Um, <laughs> The, the, the 2009 version, which is, you know, which is the best one, sells hotcakes still, which is the Lisbon version. And that introduced a new phrase, a new, a new wording, which said, which acknowledged for the first time that Europe, European sport has a special model, does a special thing for Europeans. Um, so you've got this 
this treaty article, you know, treaty, treaty it's, it's, it's like Europe's, it's biblical truth, it's constitutional truth. And it says sports special. Now, also in the treaty, you've got another article which says we hate monopolies and we hate cartels. And those, those guys have got to go down if they break the law. So what do you do when you've got two articles in a treaty, uh, two things which have biblical truth, and you have to net them off against each other? Do we not apply the competition law because they're a special sporting body? Or really, is UEFA, I mean, OK, it's, it's, it's doing sporting things like checking the size of, uh, of balls and pitches, sizes and studs and running the calendar. But really, it's a multi-billion dollar business. So shouldn't we just be applying business rules to it? So the court had to ask, what, do the spe- what are the special things that we do for sport? And essentially, can we can we cut UEFA and indeed any sporting bodies? On the same day, there was a hearing about the skating union, which does speed skating. Speed skating had banned uh, two Dutch guys in Lycra from a <laughs> event in Dubai because they said the Dubai event involved betting and betting brought the game into disrepute. And it's our job as the governing body not to um, to protect the integrity of the sport. And so therefore, we're banning this Dubai event. Now, the Dubai event guys said, that's unfair. And the sports guy said, well, I could go and earn some extra money down there. You know, the, 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 the governing body is stopping me making some extra cash. I've only got a career that lasts four or five years because my knees are going to give out on the ice. And so in that period, I need to make as much money as I can. So it's this, it's this clash. It's what the court was looking at. And it's saying, OK, if we are going to curtail antitrust law, how do we do that in a way that doesn't completely undermine it? So UEFA has had its fair share of headlines over the years, not all of them flattering or complimentary. Was there any debate about doing something with UEFA? I mean, breaking it up, for example, or reforming it, changing it? Yes, yeah, so put yourself in the shoes of the Super League. And the Super League is pointing back to UEFA and saying, guys, are we really saying that UEFA, you know, listing off all the corruption scandals that UEFA, are we really saying that these guys are the, are the guardians of the spirit of European football? Yeah, these guys are a monopoly. These guys have got their hands in the jar. You know, they make, make you know, there's plenty of headlines over the years of all sorts of scandals. And why is it that only UEFA should be the guardian? There are lots of other sports which function with a private company. So if you think of the Tour de France, the Tour de France is, is, uh, is run by a private company. The Six Nations is run by uh, a rugby tournament, is run by a private company. There are, it, it isn't that you have to have a federation association that is a separate entity which, which uh, runs the sport. But crucially, this whole thing boils down to the potential for a conflict of interest. You've got a governing body. The governing body does two things. One, it does the rules of the game. And, you know, imagine the governing body for um, dressage. They will do things like they'll protect the uh, horses, make sure they protect the, the, the audience, the spectators are protected, uh, make sure that the you know, right kit is used, the, the right kind, you know, you know the, the, the rules of the game to keep everyone safe. But on the other hand, they will also be the people deciding on the calendar, and the calendar decides on, OK, we can only play 20 matches a year or 20 events a year. And you're not going to you're, you're not going to let someone in to launch a rival event because that's going to, you know, uh, ruin the calendar. But at the same time, you're just stopping uh, someone who's got a really good idea for, say, you're going to you want to do an alternative Tour de France, which gives equal time and equal um, prize money to women. You know, at the moment, the, the women's Tour de France is a pale, pale version of the men's one. I think it lasts a day or two. 
and, and doesn't have the money. And you could come and say, I've got a great idea. I'm going to do, a, I'm going to do another league that's going to give more you know, um, uh, money and, and time and broadcasting to, to women. But you can't do that because the governing body sits on top of the sport and plays these two roles, the role of regulator, size of pitches, size of balls, and but has is an economic actor. So should you split the two apart and say, someone does the size of the balls, someone else does the economic activities. And what the court said is, should we do this? And basically UEFA and the commission, European Commission and others said, breaking up UEFA or breaking up a governing body is not the only solution. You can uh, counteract this con- conflict of interest in ways that don't necessarily mean you have to do something as draconian as breaking up UEFA. That being the case, where do things go from here? What, uh, what are we waiting for from the courts and what is likely to be the outcome? So I think um, the next step, and you know, mark this down in your diaries, um, is December the 15th. December the 15th, it will be an opinion from the court. So the court has a sort of advisor called an advocate general who says, uh, having listened to everything, I think the solution is this. And uh, he or she, it's a he in this case, Rantos, his name is, uh, African General Rantos, he will present an opinion and say, I think the answer is this. Uh, The rest of the court then reads that and and, and decides whether or not uh, it's a good idea and follow it or whether they think uh, there's a different solution. But it gives you the first insight into which way the court might head. That will be an opinion on both um, the football dispute and also the skating dispute because they raise essentially the same question. Then I think we'll get a judgment sometime um, early next year. I mean, just one other thing I want to mention is um, I've been to the court a load of times over the years, and this is the first time I've ever seen 2021 countries stand up. So uh, um, a country has the right to appear before the court. If it sees a dispute going on uh, that it wants to have its say on, it has the right to turn up. And usually you get one or two countries um, turning up. There were 20, 21 I think, in this instance. And, and, and broadly, Lewis, what are they arguing? What's the position of the member states who are showing up? They all said, don't touch UEFA. Uh, and it was remarkable. It was, it was a fantastic piece of orchestration, whoever was involved in it. You know, uh, hats off to you. Um, they all stood up one after the other and said, don't touch UEFA. UEFA's fine. We don't like the Super League. These are guys, uh, these guys are, it's a closed shop. They're just in it to take money. And they're going to take money away from the game. And do you know why we want to keep UEFA? Because UEFA redistributes the money it makes. You know, remember the billion dollar deals for the broadcasting rights for the Champions League. When it makes those deals, it feeds that money back into national, you know, the, the Spanish FA and the Romanian FA. And the Maltese stood up and said, you know what? We've had 30 million for our football pitches. That's a lot more than the 2 million a year we have for sport in the country. You've got the Czechs standing up saying, when this great footballer left to go and join West Ham in the UK, his local club, got a 40,000 euro kickback. You've got uh, other countries saying the amount of money we get from UEFA can be up to 20% of the income of that club. And so they listed all that off. And it, it, was, it, was, a, it, was, a, it was remarkable to see. Obviously, what the Super League says is UEFA doesn't, you know, isn't, that's not the only model for solidarity. We would also, if you let us set up another league, we would also have a fund. It would have more money we give back to these guys. Uh, and we'd be even better at doing it. So uh, th- there was a there is a national interest, and these countries essentially stood up and said to the court, uh, "Don't go near UEFA." Lewis, if this was anything other than sport, it would be an open and shut case in favour of the Super League, right? Is that a fair conclusion for us to to draw? 
it would be certainly much, much more straightforward because the um, uh, it would be business to business. And in that instance, you've got one large business, which sort of, you know, uh, stands above, uh, stands astride the whole industry, which is UEFA. And you've got a small entrant trying to come in with a new product and couldn't really think of this is essentially the cases against Google, which is Google runs the Internet and someone's trying to launch a product and can't get in. So. Yeah, it's the it is sport alone which makes this different. And one of the judges asked during the hearing, you know, look, if this wasn't sport, if this was just any industry, this would be, you know, this would fall under the competition rules, no problem. But also, sport nowadays, it's entertainment. He said, you know, sport is is it's Hollywood. It's so why are we giving a you know why should we give a special um, exemption to uh, something because it's sport when in fact it is a big money business obviously the answer to that is it might be a big money business but that big money flows back into the grassroots and that is what makes sport what it is because James as I started your dream is alive to play for Australia in the you know 2028 World Cup uh, it's the only thing I'm clinging to at the moment but look <laughs> thank you so much Lewis thank you for schlepping down to Luxembourg for us it's uh, been great talking as always a pleasure Lewis Crofts is MLEX's editor-in-chief. He was speaking to me from Brussels. His analysis of this case is ready for you to read at our website, mlexmarketinsight.com. That's mlexmarketinsight.com, and that's where you need to be for all of the very best of MLEX's reporting and analysis. If you're a subscriber, you'll see at the end of the story, there's a link to a portfolio of writing and statements referring to this case with entries that go back to April 2020 when the European Super League was announced. Now, is that the time? Goodness me, allow me to wrap things up very quickly with the usual rock-solid promise to be back in your feed next Friday at more or less the same time. From me, James Paniki, and everyone here at MLEX and LexisNexis, thank you for listening. I'll see you again very, very soon. Bye for now.